if the entire world in, embraced Bitcoin and or if somebody came along and somehow hacked the system and increased the supply of it, which I'm not that's, sure if that, that could happen. That's where, yeah, that's where it falls apart because there is no hacking the system. Okay. Right? This is people get very confused. Bitcoin is not a central software suite that someone could hack into and change it. It's distributed. So whatever version of Bitcoin you choose to run and I choose to run and everyone chooses to run is Bitcoin. It's an emergent consensus. It's an agreement. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Without further ado, my conversation with no one other than Robert Breedlove. Hey, Tim. Good to be back. Uh, things are good, man. Like I was telling you, I just wrapped up a trip um, through Europe, had some work and some vacation. Now I'm back in Nashville, back on the grind, and... Um, Got a lot more travel coming up this year, but but things are really good. You were doing uh, some some conferences that you were speaking at in, in Europe. Is that what was happening? Yeah, so I've been both speaking, doing keynote uh, keynotes at conferences, doing panels at conferences, both moderating and participating. And then we also take the show on the road when we go. Like the, the two conferences I went to were Bitcoin Prague and the Oslo Freedom Forum. So there's a lot of uh, select people in one place at one time. So we just take our whole mobile studio there and interview a lot of people back to back. So uh, I used to go to these events and enjoy them and participate. 
and you know occasionally speak so it's become much more of a workload because you're interviewing you know two or three people a day you're preparing for a keynote you're on a panel but um that's kind of the nature of the the business i guess getting into the media game you've just got to uh get as much juice for the squeeze as you can so these events have gone from being kind of like uh an enjoyable vacation type of thing like a networking event where you go and see a lot of people and have fun to something that's a lot more work heavy but you know i love my work so it's not that bad yeah yeah so let's dive into your work um i have uh, i have two questions and i'm going to let you take them in whichever order you want You'll probably laugh at both questions because they're massive rabbit holes, but I, I really feel like we could probably spend most of the conversation on these two questions. The first question is, what is Bitcoin? Mm. Okay, Because I, I think that there's, at least from my personal experience, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I, I didn't really understand what it was. And then there became a point where I thought that I knew what it was. And then there became a point where I realized it's so much more than I thought that it was. And I think it's so much more than the general public perceives it to be. And I think that's a part of the process is people getting educated on what Bitcoin is. So I, I, I want to ask you that. And then I want to ask you, what is money? <laughs> because I don't know that you can answer the conversation or the question of what is Bitcoin without answering what is money. But I'm going to leave it up to you to take them in the order that you think uh, they should be delivered in. Man, those are, well, you literally just asked. The two questions that my entire show, really, what is money, right? You start with what is money, and the and answer to that is Bitcoin is money. And so my entire show, the What Is Money show, that we're now 350 episodes into, probably got to be over 500 hours of content by now, has been centered, wrapped around the axis of trying to answer those two questions. And I'll tell you what... Uh, one of the things, before I get to answering these questions, and I think you'll see this as we go through the conversation, one of the points asking the question, what is money in particular, has drawn me to is that language is simply insufficient to describe this infinitely complex, dynamic, fluid reality that we inhabit. Now, it's it's insufficient but it's also indispensable. Like we can't, like the, what separates man from animal is that we have language and rationality. Um, there's a great quote that I can't recall who said it, but he said, you know, the purpose of free speech is so that our ideas can go to battle and die so that our bodies don't have to. So it's, we're like the animal that figured out how to resolve disputes among ourselves using rationality rather than pure violence. And that's literally what makes us man. That's what makes us human. And that's what allows us to build civilization. But the it's kind of like, I consider language to be a mapping tool. Like we're constantly trying to map reality. And there's, a, there's another saying here that the map is not the territory, right? The, the, the map will always exclude certain features or details or nuance about the territory. Because if the map was the territory, then there would be no, it would be the territory, right? There'd be no use to have the map. So, and you see language change over time as our technological realities change. Uh, for instance, today you might hear people say things like, oh, that's a feature, not a bug. You know, they could say that about anything. You'd be on something on their car, 
something about their personality, so you know, a commentary on um, anything really. But the point is, if you said that 25 years ago, no one would know what the hell you're talking about. That's a feature, not a bug. People are like, what? I have no idea what that means. So we we change our our phrases, we change our words. Um, you know, even like the word meme, right? Uh, now, memetics have been talked about for a long time, but meme really became uh, part of mainstream vernacular post-internet culture, right? As we started sharing these little cultural data packets where you combine like popular scenes of movies with certain little quotes and they might be funny or they might be informative. And memes have, you know, they've become kind of like a mainstream currency for the internet. So anyways, I say all that to frame the answer to these questions that what I'm going to try to say to you is never going to be fully descriptive of the reality of what is. And I've actually found that that, that question, I feel very fortunate to have stumbled upon the question, what is money? Because initially it was just me learning about Bitcoin. I found that the first thing you needed to understand was the nature of money. Otherwise you're never going to understand Bitcoin. When these, uh, when people with a technical focus would try to answer the question, they hit you with something like, Bitcoin is a distributed peer-to-peer software network that you can that solve the Byzantine general's problem that allows us to move money without intermediaries. You know, and people like, you know, their eye, you know, 99% of humans, their eyes just gloss over. Like, what the hell does that mean? You've I, I've asked you a complicated question and you've given me more questions. So me being like a non-technical specialist, I know enough about like the computer science of Bitcoin and um let's say network effects to understand how it works, but I'm not a coder. I'm not a, a software developer. So when I was trying to understand Bitcoin, I approached it more from an economic standpoint. And when you start going into the economics rabbit hole, you actually find that the question, what is money has been long debated and is still debated among economists. They still don't have like a clear answer. So I'll actually, I'm going to invert them and I'll start with, the nature of money first, and then I'll try and describe Bitcoin. And I'm going to do this again. We've spent hundreds of hours on the shows doing this. I'm not going to be able to compress all of that into a few minutes here, but I will try to give you the the crystallized nugget, if you will, that I've pulled out of my experience. So one of the most apt answers to the question, what is money? And this comes from the Austrian School of Economics is that money is a universal medium of exchange. So it is something, it is a good or a technology that we use to facilitate transactions, right? So when you try, um, we've all heard of barter, right? You know, swapping things instead of uh, transacting through money. Money's like this. Money's a mode of indirect exchange versus direct exchange. Barter would be direct. I swap you chickens or hats. Problem is, of course, do you want chickens? Do I have enough chickens? Can I divide the chickens in the right way to get the hats that I want? It creates a lot of problems. It creates what the economists call the, I think it's called the non-coincidence of wants problem. So that your wants and my wants don't necessarily coincide every time and in every place. And in fact, they almost never do. So instead, um, humans, as a consequence of just trading with one another across time, and I'm going to draw on lessons here from Carl Minger's work, 
title on the origins of money. It's a very short read written in somewhat esoteric English, but it, I think it best describes how money emerges. People are trading with one another. When they encounter this coincidence of wants problem, right? you have hats, I have chickens, but you don't want chickens and I want hats. But I know that you want something that's more common, maybe water, right? So if I can go and trade my chickens for water, I know that you'll accept water for your chickens. So I'm, I've basically obtained the water not to consume it myself. I've obtained it such that I can trade with you. So when a, when a large group of people are doing this, something that's more generally desirable, like water, will become, no pun intended, a more liquid asset than something like chickens or hats, right? There's less people that want chickens or hats in general than want water, for instance. So water will be more widely accepted in trade. So it becomes a commodity in that regard, right? That's right. Yeah, you could say a commodity, very, very much so. It's another way to put it. It's actually another answer for the question, what is money? As described by the Austrians, they say it's the most marketable good or commodity. So the Got most widely accepted good or commodity. Now, as this process unfolds with a large group of people, as you could imagine, you could intuit this, something necessarily, some good or some commodity is necessarily the most widely accepted good, right? It just, that's the thing that most people will, are willing to trade their goods and services for. There has to be something, right? If everything, you can imagine at the bottom of the liquidity stack being something very niche. Maybe it's like, I'm just picking something out of the blue here, purple telescopes. <laughs> right? It was like 1% of 1% of the people in the world. They're really they're trying to get their hands on a purple telescope. The other 99.99% don't care. Whereas something more like water, it's like, okay, well, that's a necessary um, commodity for survival. So it's much more widely accepted. And this is where just uh, I'm going to try to, from time to time, just check in with you, make sure also yeah. that the listeners are able to really comprehend and digest all of this. So a great example of that commodity would be something like oil or petrol, yeah. right? I mean, yes. that that the, the more widely used, the more necessary, the more yeah. it starts to take on the form of a currency in the way that it is functioning within societies. Is that accurate? That's right. Okay. Based on our technological paradigm. You know, oil was discovered, I'm actually reading a book on Rockefeller right now. For a long time, we, we knew about oil, but we didn't know what to do with it. We were using it for like medicines and uh, rubs and, you know, these different kind of uh, just human medicinal uses. We didn't have an industrial use for oil until we figured out the combustion engine, right? So when we became an industrialized economy and entered the, entered the industrial age, all of a sudden, oil becomes one of the most widely demanded commodities in the world because it's the most one of the most efficient ways to combust hydrocarbons into useful energy, and energy is the primary input to basically every industrial process. So it's a good point, but you have to remember different things are demanded at different times mm. based on the technological realities we inhabit. So again, back to Carl Minger's book, his argument is essentially that something in every trading society becomes the most tradable asset, if you will, or the most marketable good, the most liquid good. They also use the term the most saleable good. So it's the the good that you can sell under the market with the least loss in price. Something that has, uh, because again, it has the most 
if it's the most widely accepted, then it has the most deep liquidity and it's most widely accepted among trading partners. So you get as little slippage as possible. Like, where do you try to sell something very illiquid? Like, if you try and go and sell, a, I don't know, a seed stage investment you made in a startup company today, there's not a public market for that. There's not a secondary market for that. If you were really under duress and you needed to sell it, you'd probably have to go sell it to someone at a pretty steep discount, you know, 30, 40%. That's a term called slippage. It's like where the fair value of this thing is not being reflected by a willing buyer in the marketplace because there's just not enough willing buyers. But when it comes to something widely demanded, there's a lot of willing buyers. So you're going to have as little slippage as possible. And so every society has always, it's, it's almost like it's an emergent, another answer to the question, what is money? It's an emergent property of exchange. Like as we exchange things, we figure out very quickly, there's a coincidence, this non-coincidence of what's problem. We have to resolve it. I know you want water, not chicken. So I'm going to, I will trade for the thing that's most liquid just to be able to trade with you, right? Even if I don't need the water, if I have water is kind of a bad example because we all need water. But the point is, even if I don't need to consume the water, I will have a desire or demand for the water just so I can trade with you because I want what you have to offer. So that thing that emerges through this process of trade among a group of people is money. Like that's what emerges. And it, it's been different things in different places, different times. In ancient Western Africa, you know, they used glass beads for a really long time. On the Yap Islands, they used rye stones. Um, in ancient Rome, salt was used for a long time. Soldiers were paid in salt where we get the word salary. Um, cattle have been used. That's where we get the word uh, pecuniary, which means like relating to money. Uh, pecun is, I forget, an Italian word, maybe a Spanish word for cow. So there's all these um, connections between commodities and money and, and the different things that have served us money over time. Now, as this long, you know, the world initially emerges in kind of small pockets of trade where people are just trading, you know, in a local regional area. Information doesn't move that fast because we don't have telecommunications. So what was money in Western Africa was not necessarily what was money in North America is not necessarily what was, you know, the, the Native Americans were using clams for a while, right? We still say, we still use that term clams. They're using like clamshells. It's not necessarily what was being used as money in China, right? They they used silver for a long time and uh, they actually were the first country to have um, fiat currency as well, that they tried, the emperor moved to a pure paper currency. So, but as the world industrialized and then became interconnected by telecommunication networks and the entire world is trading amongst itself, it starts to zero in on the best money. And this is why I think the, the, one of, if not the deepest answer to the to the question, what is money, is you get to the properties of good money. And so a key point here is we as humans don't actually demand or desire a good, any good for a good sake. What we actually desire are the services it renders to us or the outcomes it can provide us. For instance, uh, you drive a Tesla, I'm pretty sure. Yep. You don't actually want a Tesla. Like you might think, oh, I want a Tesla. But what you actually want is reliable, 
fast transportation from point A to point B, right? The freedom to go wherever you want to go. You might also want a Tesla because it reflects your stance towards the environment or the ecology, right? I think an electric car is better for the world than a combustion car. Uh, it might be a status symbol, right? I want to drive a premium vehicle so that I can represent my economic status to the world to some extent. These are outcomes that you're actually de desiring that you sort of abstract into, I want a Tesla. And I love that I haven't been to a gas station in six years. There you go. Just right? a time management tool for me. Exactly. <laughs> outcome yeah. that you actually demand. So it's for not sure. the thing itself. And this is very tricky because people think, oh, you know, I want the car, I want the gold, I want the house. But it's like, not really. You actually want the services the thing is rendering to you, right? The house is giving you shelter, a place to have your family and home and to cook meals and sleep and all of these things. Now, with money, it turns out, and this is from, I'm drawing lessons from the economist Gary North, and he has an excellent book titled Honest Money. It's a free PDF online. I encourage people to check it out. Many people ascribe a different number of qualities or properties of money that people seek. Gary narrows it down to five, and I think he pretty well captures it. And he says, what people want in a good money is something that's divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, and scarce. And now I've talked about this a lot. So if I've shared this with you before, stop me and we can skip over it. Or I, know. I can keep it going. It's okay. good for me to have a refresher. And for most people, this will be their first time hearing it. Okay. Cool. And, and these these five properties of, of money, I actually, if you can integrate into, and you probably were already going to, but if you can integrate into this discussion, why gold became a currency yes, and how it meets these five principles of money, or maybe it yes. doesn't completely meet all of them, because I'm sure that you're eventually segueing into Bitcoin at that point. That's exactly right. And that's exactly where I'm going with this is, so a lot of things have been tried as money, different places, different times. Monetary technologies have often been disrupted or outcompeted. So uh, I wrote about this in the piece, Masters and Slaves of Money. In ancient Western Africa, they were using, I may have said seashells earlier. I meant glass beads. So let me correct myself. You, you did say glass beads. Okay, I did. Yeah. Okay. They're called agri beads. They later became known as slave beads. And, and here's the reason why. In this is like 15th, 16th century Western Africa, glass making technology was relatively primitive. So making these glass beads was a an expensive process. It was difficult for Africans to forge these glass beads. So that meant their supply was relatively scarce to other goods and services trading in the economy. And now that meant for, again, that's one of the properties of money, which I'll explain. That meant that glass beads served as a good money in ancient Western Africa. But when Europeans showed up and they saw that Africans were using these glass beads as currency, they quickly realized, oh my goodness, Glass bead, glass making technology back in Europe is very sophisticated. We can make massive amounts of these glass beads for cheap. We can then import them into Africa and use them to acquire the goods and services that require a lot of work to basically extract wealth from the African economy. And 
that's indeed what happened. Uh, some of these European explorers started packing ship holes full of glass beads, right? As many glass beads as they could contain onto a ship. And they would go into the African economy and they would use it to obtain goods and services because they were introducing a monetary technology or they were, you could say it's like disrupting a monetary technology. Something that was scarce in Africa was not scarce in Europe. So Europeans could bring these glass beads into Africa to acquire goods and services. And what this led to was this slow motion uh, wealth transfer from the African economy into the hands of Europeans. And over time, over the course of several hundred years, this actually impoverished Africa. And it's not, we get hung up here because we think it sounds like evil or bad, but it's almost like just a, a direct outcome of the technological realities. It's like we had better glass making technology, they had worse. So we were able to, you know, counterfeit, if you will, these glass beads and use them to acquire wealth. And so a key point here is that money needs to be expensive to produce. If another group can produce it inexpensively, they can use it to steal wealth from those who cannot produce it inexpensively. And that's a key point that I'll come back to. And devalue, I would presume, and devalue the currency in itself by producing it for a lot less. Is and that the correct? Profits, yes. Yeah. yeah. You're debasing the currency, right? So if you think of money as the means by which we acquire goods and services, if you increase the supply of money, then the price of things go up as we've all seen through uh, throughout the 20th century, as we've seen acutely over the past few years, right? Since central banks around the world counterfeited trillions of dollars, uh, the prices of everything have gone up. Now, you use the term, the provocative term of counterfeited, and I don't want to presume that somebody listening understands the utilization of this term counterfeiting. And what I'd like you to share is how uh, the the printing of money, in your view, is theft yep. and subsequently counterfeiting of the currency. I will, I will get there for sure. So now counterfeiting, it's a bit of a, again, back to the insufficiency of language here, it's a bit of a legalistic dis distinction. So George Floyd, a few years ago, right, he was, he got in trouble with the law because he had a counterfeit $20 bill which meant someone that was not the Federal Reserve copied a US $20 bill and tried to sell it onto the market as if it were a Federal Reserve pr produced $20 bill. Now, there is zero economic distinction between what George Floyd did and what the Federal Reserve does by the trillion. There's only a legal distinction. There's one group of people that are allowed to do it and a large group of people that are not allowed to do it. So in the case of money, as different monetary technologies intersect, right, as the world's globalizing and industrializing, the things that are less difficult to produce get outcompeted by the monies that are more difficult to produce. Now, it's not just, it's not quite that simple, but a lot of it comes down to that. And, and this is very intuitive, again, if you understand that Money is the thing we use to acquire goods and services. All goods and services require work to produce. Doesn't it make intuitive sense that the money that requires work to produce would be favored 
as the means of acquiring the goods and services, which also require work to produce. Say that again and and say it slowly because I kind of followed you and I want to make sure that I get it and that those that are listening get that. So you're saying that in the long run, always historically, that the more difficult the currency is to produce, mm-hmm. therefore the more scarce it is, the more value it has, correct? The more the better it is at holding its purchasing power, to get very specific, over time, right? So the monetary property of scarcity, which is the relationship between demand and supply, the the better, the less the supply of a commodity responds to new demand for it, the better it retains its scarcity and therefore the better it holds its purchasing power over time. So what happens across as as the world's interconnecting is that people are figuring out over time, oh, I was storing my purchasing power in seashells or glass beads, and then the Europeans showed up and they counterfeited the glass beads. The glass beads aren't holding purchasing power anymore. I need to find something else. And so this process unfolds a lot of different places um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, in the case of the African economy, just to put a button on that story, they became known as slave beads because this, as the African economy was impoverished, those same ship holes that the Europeans brought in glass beads with would later leave African shores, you know, hundreds of years later, for North America and for Europe, packed with African slaves, actually. They had so impoverished the African economy that they were in an economically superior position and not to say that we started slavery or we created slavery. Slavery has happened everywhere in the world. Everyone's enslaved people at some point in some time. It's been the norm of human history. So I'm not trying to demonize or moralize uh, this particular episode. Although slavery is clearly immoral, it's happened everywhere. Once uh, Europeans were in an economically superior position, they were able to basically enslave Africans. Africans started selling themselves Europeans are selling their slaves to Europeans, selling their fan, like all, it was very, it's atrocious. And it led to the transatlantic slave trade. I think the numbers are like 12 and a half million people shipped from African shores to North America and to Europe uh, over the course of 300 some odd years. 2 million people died in the Middle Passage, which was the, the track from, uh, African shores into North America, across the Atlantic. Um, so it's a lot of human life stolen, right? So there's this, there's a deep connection you'll sense here between human time, human energy, human labor, and money, right? Money is kind of a an emblem of human time, human energy, human labor. And so you can counterfeit the money or produce it cheaply, to use a less legalistic term, you can actually steal human energy, human time, human labor. So, and that's kind of what we actually are seeing happening real time in this moment. So, the other night, I went to dinner with a couple of buddies to have some Mexican food, which is historically a, kind of an inexpensive meal, all things mm-hmm. considered, unless you drink too many margaritas. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, we had some appetizers and three, you know, entrees of fajitas for, for the three of us. And without alcohol, it was $250 for Mexican yeah. food. 
Yeah. I mean, that's unheard of. Like, I don't care how good the Mexican food is. I mean, if, if this was three years ago, that same dinner would have been 125 to $150. That's so right. as an example, what I'm hearing you describe here is that myself and my two friends, as a result of the inflation that's occurred, it's had a direct impact not only on the costs of goods and services, but ultimately the labor that I need to produce to be able to afford that same thing. Is that is that a, 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 an appropriate corollary to what yeah. you're talking about here with the African beads story? That's absolutely correct. So to zoom forward and we'll come back, the over the past three years, the U, I think roughly 50% of the US dollars in circulation today have been created over the last three years. Wow. Now the United States, the Federal Reserve to be specific, has been engaged in the currency counterfeiting monopoly of the US dollar since 1913, when the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States was established. So we've been producing US dollars for 110 years. So 110 years, but 50% of those dollars have entered circulation in the past three years. three years. So if you just do the graph in your head, it's like a long, slow curve. It kind of it slowly gets a little bit steeper, but post 2020, it has gone absolutely vertical. Like a hockey stick. Now this is this is very concerning because when you debase the monetary protocol, you're debasing all of the other trust agreements and institutions and commerce, everything that Every human that you interact with through money, that relationship is being strained when you start to break down the medium by which you're exchanging. And so that you were paying that increase in fajitas, uh, Mexican food, that price increase was you paying a tax, a shadow tax to the Federal Reserve, to the shareholders of the Federal Reserve. You were being stolen from. That experience of going from 125 for a meal to 250 is you paying the tax. You're being robbed. So that's a key point. And and I'll try to put um, something around this later. But a very crystallized phrase that I've used that people really resonated with, because there's a lot of confusion about what is inflation, what does this mean? You know, we've been told that we need inflation. There's all this propaganda, I would argue even like a PSYOP that has been perpetrated by Keynesian economics saying that we need a currency counterfeiting cartel to make the economy work. We need money to be centrally planned to make the economy work. Even in the West, right, where we pride ourselves on free market principles, let the market decide wherever supply and demand meet is what the price should be. We still have the central planning of money where interest rates are centrally set by a central body, um, you know, currency can only be produced by one group. No one else can enter the currency production game under the threat of force. So, I capture all of this in the phrase that inflation is legal counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminal inflation. Again, no economic distinction between these two activities. What George Floyd did versus what the Federal Reserve did. It's only a matter of which way the legal coercion and the proverbial guns are pointed, right? There's some that, some that are 
inside and are allowed to do it or authorized to do it, and many that are outside that are not allowed to do it. So this is why I argue strongly that central banking is not only the biggest con in human history, but also the largest criminal enterprise. To control the money is to control the world. Uh, you can go back to the infamous Rothschild quote, give me the power to issue a nation's currency and I care not who makes its laws. None of it matters other than the money. If you have, he who has the gold makes the rules. It's another infamous phrase. So, so I think, quick question on this, and, and I know I'm probably jumping ahead and don't mean to, 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 to take you off too far, but I want to ask a quick question. So the more currency that the Federal Reserve prints for various reasons, the more that we are stealing from the people, and and the central bank, the shareholders. They'll be very clear about the Fed. It's a private institution. It's not federal. There are no reserves. It's just a legal monopoly. The more U.S. dollars that are counterfeited or produced, to use a nicer word, the more wealth is being transferred from productive market actors to the shareholders of that private organization called the Federal Reserve. So how would they? So that was the question. So somebody's winning in this formula. Mm-hmm. And then a whole lot of people are losing in this formula. And the way that they're losing is that we have a significant percentage of the populace that's becoming more and more difficult for them to make ends meet and to live. And this is why we have dual income households, which we didn't have back when our currency was backed by gold and we had you know kind of stop gaps controls around the currency. We saw this huge spike in, in the need for dual income families in the 1970s once Nixon took us off of the, the gold reserve. So a lot of those people are losing, but who's winning in this formula and how are they winning? Is it all based upon the upper elite winning because they can invest their money in stocks, which is driving the stock market up? What's happening here on a on a on a on a positive end for the elite few? So again, in conditions under a central banking paradigm, right, where currency is centrally monopolized and counterfeited at scale. The losers are going to be those who depend on that dollar holding its value across time. So the poor, people living on paycheck to paycheck, right? Where 90 plus percent of their assets are held in dollars, right? They're just trying to get by. Uh, Retirees and pensioners, those living on fixed income, right? They have a certain bucket of dollars they're trying to make, they're trying to survive with. And the winners are going to be those who hold the majority of their portfolio in assets that cannot be counterfeited, right? So the rich typically hold 90 plus percent of their assets in real estate, equities, commodities, uh, private businesses, et cetera. These things that you can't just poof, produce out of nowhere. There's going to be wealth transferred from the poor to them, but more acutely, there is substantial wealth being transferred specifically to the shareholders of these central banks. Now, when you when you ask the question, this is a very hard question too, who owns the Federal Reserve? Uh, the answer would be banks. You know, large regional banks own shares in the Federal Reserve. So then the question is, well, who owns the banks? And when you chase it all the way down, there's a handful of families in the mm-hmm. world that own all this shit. So this is like BlackRock and, and all of that. Yeah. Well, a lot of the shareholders in, in central banks are also inside of BlackRock. Uh, the Rothschilds are, are a very widely known name. There's a handful of other families 
that have owned this central bank apparatus for centuries. And so they're benefiting disproportionately. I mean, this is almost part and parcel with the old adage, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I'm not saying that that would not happen under a hard money gold standard, but it would happen a lot less acutely, right? Because when the rich are able to rob the poor at scale, and especially in a way that people don't understand, because people just see prices going up, and what do governments say? Like what uh, the Biden, infl- no, I'm sorry, the Putin inflation is a term we've, we've heard used. Supply chain disruptions are causing the inflation, right? There's this whole army of pseudo economists that will make up all these other excuses. Um, I think this was in Norway or Sweden. They were blaming Beyonce for the inflation. They're saying the Beyonce concerts were driving the inflation. You'll never see a mainstream media headline talk about the central bank. Like, oh, well, the fact that we just increased the money supply 50% over the past three years, do you think that has anything to do with the inflation? And so, hmm, I'll give this very simple analogy that hopefully helps clarify the nature of inflation. I call it the Babe Ruth baseball card analogy. So if there were, assume there's 100 Babe Ruth rookie baseball cards in the world. And um, maybe that's each one is worth a million dollars, just picking a number, mm-hmm. right? So $100 million worth of Babe Ruth rookie baseball cards. Meaning for those 100 cards, there's demand enough that each one was bidded up to a million dollars in price. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone discovers at a you know local yard sale a, a box full of 50 more of them or 100 more of them, and all of these baseball cards get circulated into the economy. Well, all of a sudden, the supply has doubled. Mm-hmm. So if demand remains constant, then we would assume that the value of down. each one of those baseball cards would be cut in half, Yeah, right? We had a million-dollar demand for 100 cards, or say a $100 million demand for 100 cards. If we have that same $100 million of demand for 200 cards, well, now each one's worth half a million dollars. That's the same dynamic that happens when you produce currency. The dollar, one dollar will buy you a bottle of water. If you double the money supply and bottles of water stay the same, all of a sudden every bottle of water costs two dollars. Whoever printed that money or received that newly printed money first is going to benefit because they can buy those bottles of water when they're still a dollar and the price inflation occurs over time. So by the time the poor and fixed income are buying water, it costs $2, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's not perfectly linear. It's uneven. It's high uh, described inflation like pouring honey into a jar where it accumulates in the center initially and spreads out slowly over time. So hopefully that kind of clarifies the nature of inflation and currency counterfeiting. And then I, I can take it back to why people naturally figure out over time it's in their best interest to store their economic energy or their purchasing power in the money that is most difficult to produce because that means you cannot be compromised in this way. Yes, this is perfect and I want you to go there and I just want to tie something into the average listener listening to this this show is in real estate in some capacity. And you hit on something that we've been talking a lot about within the Leadership 360 family. Many of the people you know, one of the guys that you met, his name is Josh Metal. He's a, a really astute real estate investor and he continues to 
to share with us something that that really I think you just hit on and it really kind of made it hit home for me is that in theory, not in theory, in practicality perhaps, is that if you invest in real estate and you're taking out liens against that real estate and that lien is say a half a million dollars and post issuance of that lien, the Federal Reserve prints 50% more money, okay, which then creates inflation, that actually is a stopgap against the inflation. It, it works in your favor if you have a $500,000 loan because that $500,000 loan in today's dollars is really about, what, a three hundred and $75,000 loan because of the 50% of additional money printed, or, or if I did my math correctly. But could you speak to that for just a second? Because you understand what I'm saying in, in particular to that. Okay. And look, so that's so a way to protect yourself against the, the printing of money. 100%. All this, debt. Been, this has been, again, using the money to acquire assets that cannot be counterfeited. So real estate is chief among them. There's an old saying, buy land... It's the only thing they're not making any more of, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so as we produce more dollars, you have more dollars chasing the same amount of land or real estate. What does that mean? Number go up, right? The price of real estate goes up. So you are hedging yourself against the inflation of the currency counterfeiting. Further, and you hit on the point directly, when money is being debased over time, you as an, as an economic actor are incentivized to accumulate more debt. Because I can borrow a stronger dollar, especially if I've got good, you know, uh, loan duration, good terms, good covenants, et cetera, and I can pay back weaker dollars over time. So I can borrow today, and I can pay the three percent interest. If the money supply is inflating at seven or ten percent, that I'm winning every year that I'm paying three percent interest on that loan. The currency is being debased at seven or ten percent. My land's going up at seven to ten percent a year. I'm paying three percent interest. I'm in the I'm in the green, right? So this, and this is why I would argue post-1971, when we went off the gold standard, corporate real estate has been the best performing asset class every single decade, every single decade. It's income producing real estate, real estate that they, you can't build any more of it, no more land. Obviously you can build up, so it's not exactly correct, but it's, it's much more scarce relative to the currency that's being counterfeited. And it's income producing because you have clients, right, that are using it and paying uh, the landlord. So, And you can increase the rents over time as a result of the debasement of the currency. That's exactly right. And so you've seen post-1971, again, corporate real estate, best performing asset class, debt, both public and private, has absolutely exploded. I think we globally, we're at some absurd number now. It's like 350% debt to GDP. So 350% more debt outstanding than world output every year. Like it doesn't even make sense. And so you get in this really, and again, this is the more indebtedness is occurring, the more interest is being paid, the further you're exacerbating this transfer of wealth from the renters, the renting, the working class to the owners of these assets and uh, again, the shareholders of central banks and banks. So all of that's real, but to, to try to take it back to why we got gold, why gold became money. 
again, over time, people are experimenting, different forms of money. How do I preserve purchasing power over time? Oh, that didn't work. I got to switch to this. That didn't work. I got to switch to this. The market is basically zeroing in on what is the most scarce commodity, right? The hardest commodity to produce relative to all others that is also sufficiently divisible, durable, recognizable, and portable, right? You need your money to be those four things in addition to that money being scarce relative to goods and services. Mid-1800s, the world's connected, interconnected by telecommunications networks. Uh, trade networks now start to flourish globally, right? You can trade with people on the other side of the planet. Uh, this was not possible prior to that or much more difficult at least, let's say. In that after that, the world starts to zero in on the best monetary technology, right? If you got, you basically have a globally competitive marketplace. And so as I described, different monies out competing weaker monies, or you say stronger monies out competing weaker monies. Well, the entire world is now operating as one marketplace. So it starts to figure out what is the actual best money. And as it turns out, gold was, or let me start here, monetary metals were the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable goods in the world. And of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce. Now, I should probably pause here and describe what I mean by these properties. So divisibility means I can transact with other market actors at different scales, right? I can take one small unit of the money and I can buy a cup of coffee, or I can combine these units of money and I can buy a house, right? I can transact at different scales of, of purchase. That's obviously very important because we like to buy things from a cup of coffee to a house, right? We need to be able to have uh, divisible and recombinable units such that we can transact with one another for different things. Money also needs to be durable, obviously. If we try to use something like fruit as money or meat, well, that doesn't preserve very well over time. It's interesting right? that you brought that up. I was going to say like truffles. Yeah. Like truffles meet most of these criteria, but you they have a shelf life, but they're super expensive. They're scarce. They're divisible. They're portable, yes. but they're not sustainable over time. That's right. And they also lack, um, they're, they're not durable relative to a monetary metal, right? Like something like gold basically lasts forever, right? You put the gold in the safe, it's not going to corrode or dissolve or putrefy. Whereas you put oranges in your safe, not going to work. Or truffles in the safe, it's not going to work over time. And in addition, the fact that you can consume uh, the truffles is actually problematic as well, because there's a different configuration of demand for them, a non-monetary demand. And something I'll, I'll come back to as well. So and then portability is pretty obvious. You want to be able to move the money across space, right? I, if my money is just a giant, like, um, again, the Yap Islanders use giant stones, you can't move those across space very easily. Like, it works for a small island. Everyone can sort of transact on a ledger in these, with these big stones. But if I want to transact with someone on the other side of the world, it's hard to move a 10-ton stone across the world to buy a house, whatever it may be. So you need a money that can be moved across space. Uh, recognizability is the, the capacity or the efficiency by which we can test the authenticity of the money or the veracity, like to make sure it is what it is, 
This is where we get the term sound money, actually. So to to val- you have to be able to validate its authenticity. It's actually gold. Yeah, that it's actually gold or it's actually silver or it's actually whatever it's represented to be. Remember, we talked about the glass beads. Um, there was actually a lot of back and forth when Europeans started to bring these glass beads into Africa. Africans initially accepted them in trade, but over time they realized, oh, wait a minute. Some of these beads are a little bit different than our beads. So we're going to try to, we're not going to accept the European beads. We're only going to accept these African beads. Then the Europeans would adapt, right? They try to make a closer rep, uh, replica of the, the African glass bead. And it was just like cat and mouse game. But over time, uh, glass beads were produced in mass quantities and therefore their scarcity was compromised. And so it failed as a money. So you, divisible, durable, recognizable, portable. Uh, divisible, durable, portable, recognizable. Monetary metals uh, fulfill these four functions sufficiently. And of all the monetary metals, gold is the most scarce, meaning that its supply is the most difficult to change. It is the most expensive money to produce. We've been using gold for 5,000 years as money, but it became a global monetary standard, like I said, mid-1800s. Um, and now it, it functioned alongside silver for a long time because gold has a very high, gold is much more rare than silver. So when you were trying to transact in small day-to-day transactions, gold was not as useful. Like if you're going to go buy that cup of coffee, you need like gold dust. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty impractical to carry around dust and try and, you know, it's, it's very... Yes very difficult to, to use dust as currency. Whereas something like silver that's more abundant, but still has these properties, these other properties, right? It's divisible, it's durable, it's recognizable, it's portable, could be used for day-to-day transactions. And gold was reserved for larger settlements, larger transactions. Now, so we, we that works, but a problem with gold we have kind of like this bimetallic standard for a long time. Gold and silver are used alongside one another. But one of the things gold and monetary metals in general really lack of those properties is portability. It's expensive to move gold or store any metal across space, right? If I'm going to buy something on another continent, I now need to move my gold onto a wagon or whatever type of land transport, move it to the ocean, put it onto a giant container ship, ship it across the ocean, settle with a counterparty on the other side, and there's a lot of risk and cost inherent to this process, to moving this physical metal across space. So humans basically improvised or innovated a way to make gold more portable, monetary metals more portable. And that was to put monetary metals into a central, with a central custodian which we used to call a warehouse. We'd have, we had gold warehousing operations. People put their gold on deposit with a warehouse operator. The warehouse operator issues what's called a warehouse receipt. So it's a, a piece of paper that says this piece of paper is redeemable for one ounce of gold, for instance. Now people can trade these pieces of paper that are just a representation or a debt instrument or a derivative or an IOU of the monetary metal as if it is the metal itself, so long as it can be redeemed. So right, I could ship this paper across the world much more easily than I can the gold, 
or even better, I can have two banks that settle, two custodians that settle with one another in uh, in these paper currencies, and they can just make ledger adjustments, right? Deduct your account 5,000 here, add account 5,000 here, transaction settled informationally, right? I didn't have to send you physical metal. So the reason we introduced monetary metal backed, I'm sorry, currencies backed by monetary metals or a gold backed currency or a silver backed currency was to augment this technical flaw we had in the monetary technology of gold, that it was not portable. So we made it more portable, right? We created a, you could think about this as like a layer two on top of gold, to use a Bitcoin, but gold was layer one, layer two was, was banknotes, right? These warehouses would become banks and today we call them central banks. This allowed a globalizing society to trade with much higher frequency and at much higher intensity so that we could economize more quickly, right? We could get more done with less effort, basically, which is the whole point of the economy. That's and, what the and, word and, and means. in reality, by definition, what you're describing is truly a technology. Yes. Not, not, and not in the way that we look at technology in today's day and age, but back then, I would imagine that was a very advanced technological system that had been created to be able to solve this, this challenge. That's right. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. And you could, this, and this is where there's the strangeness of money again, because it's it's one thing to say gold is a technology, right? It's just a dumb rock. It doesn't really do much. Uh, it does things actually, you know, we use gold for, today we use it for computer components. We use it for dental stuff. We use it for some industrial processes. But the most, the the say 20% of the demand for gold in the world is for industrial use. 80% of the demand for gold is to use it as a store of value over time. So, we introduced this gold-backed currency standard and eventually, and, and it did, again, happened unevenly. There were countries like China and India that opted to go with a silver standard and is actually due to Sir Isaac Newton and his inability to counterfeit gold. He was an alchemist, but he could not figure out how to counterfeit gold. So he decided to move uh, then the, the supreme power of the world, England, and uh, the British Central Bank onto a gold standard. So this is the thing that holds its value best across time. So this is the money we're going to use. And so the China and India that chose a weaker money, they actually lost out in this economic contest between gold and silver. And so we saw the British colonization of India, right? A huge wealth transfer from India to Britain. 
a, a major intermixing of the cultures too. And you'll still see a lot of British colonial culture in India. You'll see a lot of Indian culture and food in London, for instance. China, same thing. They tried to move on to a silver standard and they suffered economically at the hands of those that chose a gold standard. So eventually, over time, China and India and every nation capitulate to the gold standard that Sir Isaac Newton selected for the UK. And so we get this global gold standard. And what, what, what has happened here is that we basically zeroed in on, again, back when I described earlier, as people trade, right, things move up the, the liquidity stack. Something necessarily becomes most tradable, most widely accepted. And it becomes most widely accepted because it best renders those services to the users of money. It's the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, and scarce. That's what gold was. Historically, gold is the best money humans have ever had, but it suffered from this drawback in terms of portability. So we, what do we do? We centralize the custody of gold. We issue banknotes on top of it. And that is the standard we used for a while. And it works. That actually works. We've taken a good money. We fixed its one problem and we're good. The problem is, of course, the human problem. Yeah. Great. Humans cannot be trusted. Humans cannot be trusted with that much power. You cannot trust the central custodian who says he has 10 tons of gold on reserve. You cannot trust him to only issue 10 tons of paper certificates. There is a major incentive to just issue a little bit more, right? I can start engaging in what's called fractional reserve banking. Full reserve would be, I have 10 tons of gold on reserve. I have liabilities out to my customers for 10 tons of gold certificates, right? They've placed their gold with me. They can take it on demand at any time by re redeeming one of these certificates. That's an honest business, right? There's 10 tons on reserve. There's 10 tons of liabilities in circulation. Assets and liabilities are matched. But the, the bank or the warehouse has this incredible financial incentive to just produce some more paper and say there's 15 tons of reserve, uh, or 15 tons of gold in these liability certificates or banknotes in circulation, and I only have 10 tons on reserve. So I don't have enough assets to meet the liabilities I have outstanding. I'm an insolvent operation at that point. I mean, this is what we saw in the early part of 2023 with some of the banking issues, right? Absolutely. When there are runs on the bank, the fear was, well, but they don't have the assets to match what is on the ledger in the way of deposits by the depositors. 100%. This is the nature of fractional reserve banking is that it is fraudulent at its core. There's no way around it. There's no way to legitimize it. We've legalized it, right? We've made it the norm. We now have a zero reserve currency standard, which we'll get into called fiat currency, but it is inherently fraudulent that you do not have adequate assets to satisfy the liabilities that are outstanding. And in fact, the term you just used, a bank run, right? We're all familiar with this. We've probably all seen the movie A Wonderful Life at some point, run on the bank. A bank run is not possible with a full reserve bank. If all the customers come back to redeem their gold at the same time, well, if I have full reserve bank, then I just let them redeem the gold. And that's fine. I'm a solvent business. I made revenues on storing and custodying their assets. And that's fine. I'm still in business. If all the, the problem with the bank run is when too many 
people come to redeem their assets at once or their gold at once, and there's insufficient assets to meet those redemption requests, then all of a sudden the bank, the insolvency is exposed, the fraud is exposed. So it's a key point. A bank run can only happen when a bank is running a fractional reserve operation. It's only possible when there's a fraud that the fraud can be exposed. A full reserve is non-fraudulent, fractional reserve is fraudulent. So, so another way of saying that would be a bank run by definition is nothing other than the exposing of the fraudulence that exists within the system. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Gold became money because it best satisfied these properties, but we needed to centralize it to make it scalable, right? Gold is not scalable as money unless we introduce a gold-backed currency, a layer two on top of it to make it more transactable, which works wonderfully except for the human problem, right? We are sinful, fallen creatures. No one... Now, there have been legitimate banking operations that have run full reserve banks. There's been examples of this everywhere. But this temptation to print more money or, or to prevent, to create more liabilities than you have assets on reserve actually allowed the dishonest operators, those running fractional reserves, to generate more revenues than those running full reserves. So all of a sudden you get dishonest banks outcompeting honest banks. So it's this very perverse financial situation. And uh, it culminates, you know, sorts out full reserve, becomes ever more fractionated. Maybe there's like 90% assets to liabilities, 50%, all the way down to 0%, right? 1971, right? 1971. So to get to 1971, and there's a, a key point here too that if you follow the the movements of gold across history, I think it helps explain a lot of history. For instance, in World War II, anytime Hitler would invade a country, the first thing he would do once he conquered the country is raid the central bank, go to their central bank steal, confiscate all the gold, right? I've, if I'm Hitler, I'm just engaged in this extremely expensive enterprise of going to war, which is the most expensive thing humans can engage in. I'm only going to engage in that activity if there is an incentive, like the, the prospect for financial gain on the other side of that, right? I'm going to acquire resources and land and gold from my conquered enemies. So... Hitler invades Poland, confiscates the gold. He invades some other countries. First thing he's doing every time he conquers them, takes the gold. You, other European countries start to see this, right? Like England, France. They're saying, well, this is a problem, right? The Blitzkrieg is advancing. He's stealing all the gold. Once he steals the gold, he can fund further war efforts. So there's, there's this vicious feedback loop, right? The more he conquers, the more he steals, the more he, Hitler is able to conquer and steal. So working with the allies, England, France, other countries start to ship gold, their gold, to North America as a means of, a, of putting it in a geographically protected safe haven. Right? Much harder for Hitler to fly across the Atlantic, defeat the United States, get the gold. Like He can't do that, really. He's just advancing on, on land. And so 
once enough of the gold was shipped here to the United States, who was very hesitant to enter the war for a long time, at some point we realized, well, look, we've got all the gold now, or most of the gold. And he who has the gold makes the rules. So there came this inflection point where the United States said, well, I guess we should enter this war. And, you know, our opponents are war wearied, right? Hitler was fighting a two front war with Russia and with uh, European countries. The United States enters the war late. We we win, quote unquote, win, right? We we defeat Hitler. And we win World War II, as we're told in the United States. Um, there's, there's another, it's kind of a sidebar argument, but, you know, 30 million Russians were killed in World War II. I would argue that they were the actual winners in a way. Like they are the ones that put the most damage onto Hitler and put him into this position of being able to be defeated by the United States in its late entry. We went in World War II. What is the first thing the United States does after it wins World War II? Well, it probably keeps the gold as debt or reparations for their heroic deeds. We keep the gold, of course, because it's all about the money. And then we hold the Bretton Woods. And in that conference, we rewrite the global banking rules. London is no longer going to be the financial center of the world. New York City is. And the United States dollar will be pegged to gold. All other currencies will then be pegged to the US dollar. And now this created what the French would later call the exorbitant privilege for the United States to run deficits without tears. So we could print as many dollars as we wanted with, low, again, no cost, low to no cost. We can export these dollars worldwide and have other countries send us goods and services that require work and cost to produce. So we had that asymmetric advantage of we can export dollars and inflation, basically, and import goods and services. Now, this That's scheme- not- Hold on. That's- that's actually exactly the same thing as with the beads. It's exactly the same thing. It's the glass beads all over again. It's the same thing. Wow. It's the same thing. It's oh, dude, We are just apes fighting over resources. That's all we are. Now, we maybe that's an oversimplification. We've got a lot of good redeeming qualities as well. But when you look at kind of this brutal nature of political and military history- it's always about the money. It's And you know this, right? Like your experience as an entrepreneur, you go into the world. Isn't it always people fighting over money? Of always. course. Like I've been a CFO for years. That was my job. Like I'm just fighting over money every single day. How could it be any different at the geopolitical scale? And again, not just it's not just an opinion. It's how could you even wage the war profitably you have the most, the largest cost structure imaginable when you engage in warfare. If there were not revenues on the other side of that, then you wouldn't engage in the activity. If you couldn't steal the money and the resources of your conquered opponents, why would you do it? You couldn't do it, actually. You'd go and conquer one country, there was nothing to confiscate, then you'd be out of business. At all these costs, I have no revenues, I'm out of business. War's over. So it's always about the money. Like, it's a very, like, People don't want to accept this. It's like, it's kind of like a, gives you an icky feeling about being human, but we have to look at this objectively. And so 
that Bretton Woods scheme works. And it works because the United States promised these countries that were able to, that were accepting dollars in trade, that they could redeem those dollars for gold. Right? So we were on a gold standard, air quotes, gold standard. But it was a, it was a centrally controlled gold standard at the discretion of the United States. And so what happens from the end of World War II until the late 60s is that we, we obviously exploit that economic advantage that we have, and we produce dollars far in excess of our gold reserves. I think we're leveraged like six to one by the time we're in the late 60s. So there's six times more dollars in circulation, liabilities for gold, than we, United States, have gold in reserves. So we're running a fractional reserve. We have 16% roughly of the assets necessary to meet our outstanding liabilities. Well, astute people in England and in France, they noticed this and they say, you know what? We've accumulated a lot of dollars trading with you, Mr. United States, but you've produced a lot of dollars. I think I'm going to send these dollars back and redeem some gold now because I'm not so sure. I don't think I trust this fractional reserve. I don't want to get caught up in a bank run on the United States. So England redeems, France redeems. There were some other redemptions. When Germany sought to redeem in 1971, I think it was in 1970 actually, that is what incited the infamous 1971 Nixon shock where he came on television, blamed trade flows and capitalists. Always Politicians always blame the market. They always blame the market. It's never about them never about the currency counterfeiting. It's always greedy capitalists, et cetera, et cetera. And said, we were going to temporarily, temporarily in 1971, suspend US dollar redeemability for gold to fix these problems with the greedy capitalist. That is when the entire world was moved from a fractional reserve gold standard, where again, we were like 16% assets to liabilities onto a pure fiat currency standard, which is a 0% standard. There are no assets. There's no redeemability. The, the, the currency has become an absolute confidence game. And this created a situation where the United States can now issue dollars ad infinitum. There's no restraint, right? There's no, there's no mechanism by which another country can call our bluff or can expose the fraud of our fraudulent, of our fractional reserve banking. And indeed, here we sit in 2023, 52 years after this temporary measure was passed, we have fiat currencies in every country in the world. There is no gold-backed currency left. I think Switzerland was the last one to abandon the gold standard in the 90s. And indeed, they had they showed a lot of economic strength up until that point. And once they abandoned the gold standard... They've had this explosion in debt to GDP, uh, evisceration of the middle class, uh, all the problems. And, and again, I always want to point people here. There's a great website, WTFHappenedIn1971.com. This is not just a financial malaise. When we abandon the gold standard, we see things like obesity explode, addiction suicides, uh, 
the list goes on and on and on. There's this whole gamut of socioeconomic data that has become totally unhinged since we separated or since we uh, broke the gold standard in 1971. And so now here we are, we're 350% global debt to GDP. Um, governments are totally unrestrained in their capacity to produce new currency. And what this allows them to do, if you consider governments just a business like every other business, the difference between free market private enterprise and government is that if a free market private enterprise is not profitable, then it goes out of business, right? It goes bankrupt. The capital that is inside that business is then sold uh, via bankruptcy proceedings or whatever liquidation mechanisms, and that capital is assimilated into other productive enterprises that are profitable. This is how capitalism works. The difference with a, a fiat currency funded nation state is that they can produce new units of currency to paper over these losses. So again, the deficit without tears. A deficit just means you're unprofitable as an organization. But if you have a monopoly on currency production, it doesn't matter if you're not profitable. I'll just print more money to, to cover the losses. And I'll externalize the cost of those losses onto the productive Everyone else. economy via inflation. Wow. So this, So now we live in this world where we have a cartel of central bank currency counterfeiters that run the world. It's the largest criminal syndicate that has ever existed in human history. The terms of purchasing power stolen are, are mind-bending. Again, my piece, Masters and Slaves of Money, I created a proxy for what I took was the average, no, the actual annual expansion in US dollar supply. So say it grew 7%. And then I took that delta, that increase in the dollar supply, and I divided it by the average hourly wage rate. So you can get a proxy for how many human hours are actually being stolen through currency counterfeiting. And when you run the numbers, the Federal Reserve, this is pre-2020, by the way, so the numbers are a lot worse now. The Federal Reserve had stolen 1 trillion hours of human labor between, I think this is the late, uh, I'm sorry, 1980 until like 2020. That's the equivalent. If you run that, um, if you assume that people work 2000 hours a year, that's the equivalent of enslaving a workforce of 11.4 million people for 40 years straight through currency counterfeiting. Now it's much more widespread, it's much more diffuse, like we're all paying in just a little bit. Have you ever seen the movie Office Space? Okay, it's a very funny movie. Highly recommend it. But the the scam the guys are running in that movie is they they work in IT basically, and they develop a computer bug that steals like a fraction of a penny off of every transaction that runs through their system, and like deposits it deposits it into their account. This is something like that, right? You're stealing from everyone a little bit slowly, and you have all this plausible deniability because when prices go up, you're like, oh well, it's Putin. Oh, it's the capitalists. Oh, it's the supply, supply chain. chain. Yeah. Oh, it's Beyonce. Like it's, it's anything but counterfeiting. And so that's the world we live in. And um, with that, we could talk about Bitcoin, but I guess I could pause here if you have any questions. No, no, I think it's actually perfect. So I guess I'll, I'm going to rephrase the question slightly. 
such a great expose there, bro, on money and and thank, thank you. you. I mean, like I I've heard you talk about this before, and just as a friend, I want to share with you, you just keep getting better. You're t- you're even tighter at it, and you know, like for anybody who wants an even more depth understanding of what Robert just so beautifully articulated, go spend the four hours and listen to his brilliant podcast with Lex Friedman, which is my introduction to you. And yet I've seen this this constant evolution in you in terms of the way that you are explaining this and using even even more dialed in metaphors that really make it digestible. You're really gifted at explaining these these complex subject matters. So I think that the, the you're welcome. So I think that the next question and, and the last question, because I mean, I think that we've, we can really put the, the icing on the cake here is not just what is Bitcoin, but why Bitcoin? And mm. what I want to ask inclusive of that is um, there was a time, I believe, where your greatest fear of Bitcoin was a choking of that ability to have it manifest into its fullest reality by government. Um, I'd love for you to comment on whether or not that's still a fear. I mean, I think that you stated that about three years ago and a lot's happened in that time. Um, Seems to have stabilized at least over the last 60 days or so quite nicely. Like, I mean, right at that 30,000 level, it's just been in a very tight trading range, which I, I, I would love to know if you think that that's a, a sign of anything. Mm. Um, uh, but gosh, I, as a student of Bitcoin, certainly not to anywhere near the degree that you are, but learning a lot from you, it's just feeling more and more like a certainty to me, but I, I think that we want the listener to understand it more fully, so take over from here. Yeah, of course. Um... Yeah, I, I guess the most common stumbling block for people initially, this is kind of the general stereotypical journey into the Bitcoin rabbit hole for people. Stage one is bullshit, magic internet money, like whatever. That's that's a toy. It's a joke. It's going to go away. If you dig a little bit deeper, you sound like Charlie Munger. Yeah, Charlie. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of people listen to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, right? It's it's human nature actually to emulate those who have been successful. But you have to remember that technology really changes the world, and it is changing it faster than ever today. So, guys like ninety plus year old Charlie Munger and octogenarian Warren Buffett, they have been wildly successful under this fiat currency paradigm largely through real estate investments, bank investments, distressed company investments. Like they've taken, they've played the game very well, but they've played a game that is now changing, right? The fiat currency paradigm is at least facing an existential threat. And these guys, they're also, you know, they were one of the last to buy Apple stock and Amazon stock, right? They missed most of the run-up of these these massively dominant digital networks, they don't get digital technology. So I would just caution people, like it's very easy for a lot of quote unquote smart money guys to just follow and imitate strategies that have been successful in the past, but almost by definition, that's not gonna work in the future, 
right? Maybe it'll work for some period of time, but when there's a paradigm shift, um, I think humility is the best strategy. You just need to be willing to learn how things are changing, why things are changing, where, where things are likely going. Uh, you mentioned my my fear for Bitcoin. Well, I guess we'll get into this a bit more when I describe Bitcoin, but I, I basically think at this point, um, so long as Bitcoin continues to exist, which is exactly what it's designed to do, this is a very simple software protocol wrapped in military-grade encryption, and it's designed to do one thing, and that is survive. Um, this is the $100 trillion question, $100 trillion plus dollar question. It is the greatest threat to entrenched power structures, specifically central banks, that there has ever been. There was no viable solution whatsoever to central banking prior to Bitcoin. And the, the big question is, how do you stop it? No one knows how to stop this thing. Um, it's, and th this will be a high level description, but I'll try to unpack it. It's basically this uh, set or of positive incentives that it's paying everyone that interacts with it. Bitcoin is paying everyone that interacts with it. The miners, the entrepreneurs, the savers in Bitcoin are being paid, they're being rewarded purchasing power to contribute to the success and proliferation of its network. So it's a strange shift in the incentive structure where in a gold-based world, you know, there is a way for your win to be my win if we trade consensually, right? We can both benefit, we can grow the proverbial economic pie, but there's also this temptation to just invade your ass and steal your gold, right? Back to Hitler, like, well, that was his strategy. Let me just go and conquer them and take their stuff. Bitcoin, because it's a dematerialized money, it's non-physical, you can't confiscate it as easily. It's not as economically efficient to confiscate it. It's even impossible to confiscate it if you custody it properly. So it's tilting the incentive landscape away from coercion and violence which is the specialization of government, and toward long-term, peaceful, prosperous trading relationships, which is the nature of free market economics. So I guess let me give you the what Bitcoin is, and then we talk about the why. I think we've covered a lot of the why, just knowing that all the problems I just laid out were basically you know, the nation state and central bank paradigm is a consequence of gold and its physicality. And that the fact that we had to centralize all of it, that creates a giant honeypot to be exploited. And we're living under the consequences of that exploitation. So what is Bitcoin? Now, if we, if we use gold as a prism through which to look at Bitcoin, or the nature of money itself. As I said, one of the deepest answers to that question are those five properties of money. Bitcoin is the first monetary technology in human history that has effectively perfected all five properties of money. Bitcoin is infinitely divisible. Today we have one Bitcoin is equal to 100 million sats. So you can divide, break down each Bitcoin into 100 million subunits called a Satoshi or a SAT. 
Now this means you can transact at different scales. Like we said, right? I can send you 50 Bitcoin for the same price. I can send you 50,000 sats. So I can transact, I can spend this money very easily at very low cost at any scale that I choose. If there ever came a point that Bitcoin had become, had grown so large in market capitalization, the software has the capacity via a backwards compatible soft fork, which is basically just a software update that is backwards compatible to increase that divisibility. We could make Bitcoin divisible into a billion, 10 billion, a trillion subunits, whatever is necessary, right? Say you get to that point where one cup of coffee costs half a sat. Well, then market participants can increase the divisibility of that currency and make it divisible into 1 billion sats or micro sats or whatever we call it. And then all of a sudden you can transact for coffee again uh, at, at a unit that's that's sufficient. Bitcoin has also perfected durability. Now, this may sound strange because, as we said, durability is something that it's the quality of a physical asset to persist over time, right? As we said earlier, gold makes better money than oranges because oranges rot and gold doesn't. So the question kind of comes, how can Bitcoin be durable if it's not even tangible? What does that mean? The analogy I love to draw on here is the Bible. So the Bible is a physical book, right? But it's also much more than that. The Bible is this set of distributed ideas and information that has so deeply permeated human consciousness and has been replicated so many times in so many places that I think there's a strong argument to be made that human history will not outlive the Bible. Like the Bible will always persist. It is, it's there, right? The, the idea of the Bible is not going anywhere so far as I can tell. And it's, it's not going anywhere because it's so widely distributed and it's so widely replicated. So you could go on a Bible burning campaign and you could march across the world and you could burn and destroy as many Bibles as you possibly can. But you're only going to create this situation where, first of all, you're probably going to have a lot of backlash from a lot of people. Second of all, you're going to induce them to replicate the Bible even more, right? To try and offset the destruction you're doing. And so the idea, like no matter how many Bibles you destroy, the idea of the Bible is very anti-fragile. If you try and destroy it or get rid of it or disseminate it or, or prevent its dissemination, you're facing this seemingly unwinnable battle. And Bitcoin adopts a similar dynamic in that the software is so robust or even anti-fragile to attack because it's just replicated everywhere. Like I run a Bitcoin node, I have all of Bitcoin's software and all of Bitcoin's transaction history fully contained on my node. I don't need to trust anyone else's record I don't need if someone well, what's a, for for the benefit of everyone that doesn't know what a node is. Can you give us a brief description of what that term means? Sure. So a node is is basically that. It's basically you are choosing because Bitcoin's open source software. Anyone can fork it, change it, do whatever they want. The individual chooses which version of Bitcoin they want, 
and that is uh, their record, their record of transactions and their their version of the software, if you will. And whichever version of Bitcoin is most widely selected as the one, which we call Bitcoin Core today, is Bitcoin. So it's individuals acting in their own self-interest. The emergent or, or, or aggregate outcome of that is what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin. And so when it comes to Bitcoin Core, you know, we have a certain block size. Now, I don't want to get too technical here, but a block is basically how much data can be contained in each block of transactions that's generated every 10 minutes. And we have a certain supply cap, which with Bitcoin is 21 million units. So this creates the scarcity dynamic that is right. even more prolific than gold. That's right, which we will get to. So... If you tried to destroy Bitcoin, just like if you tried to destroy the idea of Bitcoin, which Bitcoin basically is just this idea running on open source software all over the world, replicated everywhere. We often say it's everywhere and nowhere, kind of like the Bible itself. You would have to destroy every copy of Bitcoin everywhere in the world simultaneously. And you would have to also not, there, there would have to be no competitive response, right? So when you start destroying Bitcoin, Bitcoin nodes, Bitcoin mining operations, the market would respond by producing more of these things. So the idea of Bitcoin seemingly, now look, there are, in terms of risk here, this is where you get into what I think the actual risk to Bitcoin are, what I would call black swan events. These are I can't describe it to you because a black swan, by definition, is an unknowable unknown. To even say, oh, what you, people misuse this term all the time. They say like the 2008 great financial crisis was a black swan. No, it wasn't. Are you kidding me? We know, we know fiat currency and fractional reserve banking doesn't work. It actually amplifies the boom and bust business cycle. Mises wrote about this in the 1940s. Great financial crisis is a totally expected outcome of fiat currency. Like. Not, it's the least surprising thing ever, actually. The timing might be surprising, but the actual event itself is totally unsurprising. So a, a black swan would be something like, and look, again, you can't talk about it, some type of cosmological event or solar flare or something that wiped out all electronics everywhere forever, right? Like these are the types of risk, these long tail apocalyptic highly unlikely events are the only real threats I see to Bitcoin. And so in terms of uh, Bitcoin's durability as an intangible digital asset that's distributed everywhere and nowhere, it's, a, it's as anti-fragile to time as something like the Bible itself, right? So it's this informational construct. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a coin join. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make coin joins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. 
So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Can you take one second to, maybe if you have a metaphor for this, my hunch is you probably do. What I hear a lot from people that are first getting introduced to Bitcoin is, I can't get my head around it because there's nothing physical or tangible about it. Like gold, I can hold gold in my hand. Silver, I can hold diamonds in my hand. I can get my head around those somehow being a currency. But how can I buy into a currency that doesn't physically exist? How do you how do you respond to that? Sure. Um, what is the Constitution of the United States? What is the idea of human civil liberties? What is uh, what are manners? What is morality? What is your name? What is your identity? What is language? Right? These are all informational constructs that give us a lot of value. Like these are some of the most valuable things humans use. Are they difficult to get your head around? Yeah, they are, right? It's very, it's very complicated. What is language? Like very, how did we develop this? What is it? I don't know, but it's not a thing. It's not tangible. Where's English? Where is the English language? Where where <laughs> You could show me the U.S. Constitution, but obviously it's a lot more than just that physical piece of paper, right? It's this agreement, this collective agreement, and that's ex exactly what Bitcoin is, just an agreement that people say, we're going to operate this monetary technology according to our own self-interest. Everyone's basically voting for what version of Bitcoin they want by the software they operate, and the emergent outcome of that is Bitcoin, this collective agreement among people to use a currency that no one can counterfeit, no one can increase the supply of. So by way of, I, I think the Bible analogy is probably the best one I've got for durability. And um, in terms of portability, Bitcoin's also perfected this monetary property because it's just pure digital information. You can move it through any information-bearing medium, right? a computer, a human mind, a piece of paper, a song, and we, we can move information at the speed of light, I don't think we're going to get much more portable than that. That's about as fast as nature will let us move. So Bitcoin has perfected this, this property of portability. I can send Bitcoin anywhere in the world at any time. There's no one that can block that transaction, censor that transaction, reverse it. No one can do anything about it. Right When I send a Bitcoin transaction to the other side of the world, it's equivalent to me sliding you a gold coin across the table and you take it and put it in your pocket. No, There's no authority that can reverse that transaction. There's no authority that can deauthorize the value of gold. It's a free market selected social consensus or agreement that gold is valuable as money. And Bitcoin is the same. It's just this emergent social consensus that Bitcoin is valuable as money because it best satisfies these properties or even perfects these properties that I'm describing. So it's perfected divisibility, durability, portability. When it comes to recognizability, again, when I'm running my node software, I told you earlier, like the, where we got the term sound money, you drop a coin, gold coin from a certain height, it makes a very specific sound. This was used as a heuristic to determine the authenticity of the gold. So that we knew that it wasn't lead plated with gold, for instance, it was gold. There were more uh, scientific techniques, let's say, they used to call this assaying gold, 
where you would transact gold and you could actually do different chemical tests on it to make sure it is gold and not some forgery or fakery. When I run a Bitcoin node, I am authenticating that the Bitcoin is Bitcoin. I'm authenticating to the Bitcoin network. The Bit I'm checking with the Bitcoin network to make sure this Bitcoin transaction is valid. So you get this perfect recognizability. I don't need to trust anyone. I, the code is telling me this is what it says it is. And you get this further uh, beyond what gold ever offered us. You have this further feature where you can actually audit the entire network. My node can audit the network and say, well, is the supply still 21 million? Yes. Great. So I know that I own whatever my Bitcoin stash is. If I have 100 Bitcoin, then I have 100 out of a possible 21 million forever. You can't even say that about gold, right? We can estimate how much gold is in circulation. We can assume that the gold supply will only increase 1% to 2% a year as it has for most of history, but we don't know. We don't actually, we can't verify the supply of gold in circulation. We also don't know if we're either going to discover a large deposit of gold in the earth. Maybe we're going to mine the ocean floor. Maybe we're going to mine an asteroid. Maybe we're going to figure out how to produce gold cost-effectively in a lab. A lot of people don't know this. We can already produce gold artificially in a lab. We can do it today. But we can't do it cost-effectively enough to compromise the supply of gold. Right, so to to produce artificial gold actually costs more than it does to buy gold on the market. So therefore, our our lab grown gold is not yet economically feasible to compromise the store of value integrity of gold. But that's not to say it could not become possible. So gold is vulnerable to innovation in a way that Bitcoin is not. So Bitcoin is perfected recognizability in that I don't need to trust anyone. I can audit whatever Bitcoin I'm sending or receiving, and I can audit the total supply. That's something we've never had that much transparency in any monetary network. And then finally, that all important property of scarcity, right? The, the, a core reason why gold succeeded as money is because it was the most relatively scarce commodity in the world, like we described earlier. Bitcoin is the first and only asset in human history that exhibits absolute scarcity. Its supply does not change. It does not respond to changes in demand. If the price of gold were to double tomorrow, you would create a giant incentive for people not only to sell more gold onto the market, but for gold miners to produce more gold, right? Maybe there's certain gold deposits that weren't economically feasible when gold to 2,000 an ounce, but if it's at 4,000 an ounce, all of a sudden I can I can mobilize a lot more investment to go and mine that gold and sell it on the market at $4,000 an ounce. Bitcoin does not work like that. It doesn't matter. Price changes in Bitcoin do not impact its supply at all, which is to say that all demand is expressed exclusively through its price. The supply is unwavering, doesn't move. And, you know, another for instance- That's a, that's a really important distinction. I want to say that out loud because so all supply is expressed or excuse me all demand is exp expressed exclusively through its price right which makes it a very different investment from all others which are based by a supply and demand dynamic that's correct this is like, the rarest commodity in human history 
It is the rarest yeah. and most scarce commodity in human history. And there's no way for the system to be rigged or hacked or what have you to create more supply. It's absolutely f a finite cap of 21 million. It's absolutely whatever individuals select for themselves. And it's now there's a history here. You could read a book like The Block Size Wars in 2017, where you can try to campaign to get people to switch to a new version of Bitcoin, right? In this case, it was larger blocks, but you could also try to get people to switch to the Bitcoin that has a 42 million cap instead of a 21 or whatever it may be. But the the actual emergent agreement of what Bitcoin is, is what the individuals choose for themselves. I don't understand what that means, what the individuals choose. So I'm an investor in Bitcoin, you're an investor in Bitcoin. We both happen to like the fact that it has a cap of 21 million because in theory, that should drive ultimately the value of it up over time. If the entire world embraced Bitcoin and or if somebody came along and somehow hacked the system and increased the supply of it, which I'm not that's, sure if that, that could happen. That's where, yeah, that's where it falls apart because there is no hacking the system. Okay. Right? This is people get very confused. Bitcoin is not a central software suite that someone could hack into and change it. It's distributed. So whatever version of Bitcoin you choose to run and I choose to run and everyone chooses to run is Bitcoin. It's an emergent consensus. It's an agreement. Now that agreement is based on, I'm going to make that choice based on my self-interest, as are you, as is everyone else. And what optimally serves the individual self-interest of people choosing Bitcoin is the one that has a fixed supply. Because I know that optimally preserves my purchasing power over time, as do you, as does everyone else. So you would have to campaign people to go against their own individual self-interest to try and fork Bitcoin into a new version that had a different supply cap or whatever other consensus parameters. Those attempts have been made and they have all failed. How could you convince someone to do something that's against their own self-interest? And not just one person, you need to convince 51% of all Bitcoin holders to do something that's against their own self-interest. And further to that... Why 51%? 51% would be uh, the consensus, right? It's like, this, this This is called the social layer of Bitcoin. So we have the protocol layer, which is basically the rules that are being enforced. Like we've all chosen one block every 10 minutes, 21 million a block size of a certain, a certain capacity. This is the contract we've all signed effectively. Um, how would you get people to abdicate on, and 51% would be if 51% of those people chose a different contract, then there would be a different Bitcoin and Bitcoin would fork, right? We had Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash fork in 2017. Now, again, we're getting a little bit into the technical weeds here, but when a fork occurs, you're actually allocated one unit. So if I had hundred Bitcoin, when Bitcoin cash forked off, this is a social layer fork, I would now have 100 Bitcoin and 100 Bitcoin cash. And now in the market, people will determine which one do they want to save? Which one do they want to sell? This spooked a lot of people in 2017. People were like, well, if you can just fork Bitcoin, you can, you can create unlimited Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is not scarce. But if you study the history of it up until this point, every one of these Bitcoin forks collapses because I, as an individual, have an incentive like, okay, I have Bitcoin with a larger social consensus. 
and Bitcoin Cash are the smaller one. My incentive is to sell the smaller social consensus and buy more of the larger. Got it. And that's what happens. So Bitcoin Cash has collapsed in terms of Bitcoin since 2017. This is another, I mean, this is like, you could argue one of the most viable known unknowns and one of the most viable attack vectors on Bitcoin is this social consensus attack vector. But I, I have deep conviction that the people that run Bitcoin nodes, you know, they call them toxic Bitcoin maximalists for a reason. They know what they've got. You're not going to change these people's mind. You're never going to convince a Bitcoin maximalist that we need a little bit of inflation or a little bit of counterfeiting. It's like, no, we know we want a money that has 0% inflation. That's the whole name of the game. That's what the world's been searching for across all of human history. That's why gold was selected as money because it, it had the lowest supply inflation. It reliably had 1% to 2% a year for centuries. So it'll get to an affected scarcity because it has 0% unpredictable inflation. And that optimally serves the interest of everyone using Bitcoin as a savings technology. That last part's so important. Yeah. Here's, a, here's an analogy people like, like to use. Chess, right? Very popular game, been played for a long time. It's just an agreement. We just agree that these little pieces can move in certain ways and there are certain rules, right? I can move my pawn two spaces on the first move, but not after that. I can do an on passant. I can castle my king. There's all these little rules that we've just agreed to. There's no, it's not like rooted in the laws of physics. It's just a social consensus. Now you are perfectly free to go and fork, quote unquote, fork the game of chess and change the rules however you like. But nobody will want to play. Who wants to play with you? <laughs> yeah. Who wants to play with me? It's the same thing with Bitcoin. Fork it, copy it, change it, do whatever you want. No one wants to play with you. No one cares. Because we have, again, Satoshi has basically perfected the, the properties of money to the extent that he has not left any design space to introduce a new feature that could draw people away from this, this money because it's already perfected all the things that people seek in money. So Bitcoin is, I, you know, obviously it's an, an invention. This guy, gal, team, whatever, Satoshi, he identified as a man, so I'm going to call him a man. This man invented Bitcoin. But I argue that it's more than just an invention because we have discovered something that we'll never have again. We'll never have an absolutely scarce commodity ever. You can't have a physical commodity that's absolutely scarce. For instance, with gold, if we could flip a switch right now and make everyone's job in the world mine gold mining, we all quit our current job and we all go start mining gold. We could get a lot more gold above ground a lot more quickly. We could expand the supply very rapidly. You do the same thing on Bitcoin. Everyone quits their job and everyone becomes a Bitcoin miner. The supply of Bitcoin would not change. It would be absolutely and, and, and for the benefit of the listener, because I remember you and I talking about this in a previous discussion, which I think is fascinating. You go to that analogy, if everybody quit their job, went out and mined gold, the reality of it is that the price of gold is pegged, the market price of gold is pegged directly to the cost of actually mining an ounce of gold. Is that not correct? I would say it sets a floor for it, yes. Because yep. if I can produce gold at $1,900 an ounce, 
and it's selling on the market at $1,901, then I have an incentive to mine as much gold as I can right up to its market selling price. So the production cost of money sets a floor for its market value, yes. Which is why we don't have more people out there spending their time because their hourly rate of pay for for mining for gold would not yield them probably even minimum wage at the end of the day with the amount of effort that it takes. That's exactly right. It kind of sets a floor on human enterprise too. It's like if you can't, if I'm earning less money per hour than I can going and starting a gold mine, then I would just go start the gold mine. So, and this is the key point with Bitcoin too, because every four years, the new supply issuance of Bitcoin is cut in half. So 2024 is the next halving, correct? The next one, that's right. It's a little bit less than a year away. Um, Should happen around May 2024. Every four years, the new supply issuance, because there's new Bitcoin issued every 10 minutes with that block. That's the incentive for miners to mine. Today, it's 6.25 Bitcoin created every 10 minutes with every block. And that block is awarded to the miners that successfully discover the, the winning block, which is another technical thing I won't get into, but this is what secures the Bitcoin network. In May 2024, that new issuance is reduced by half from 6.25 to 3.125. Now, if you hold demand for Bitcoin constant, just like we talked about with that Babe Ruth baseball card analogy earlier, but the inverse, instead of discovering more Babe Ruth baseball cards, what if there were less? What if 20 of them were destroyed? Let's say 50 of them were destroyed. Remember, we had 100 baseball cards, a million dollars each, a $100 million market cap for Babe Ruth rookie baseball cards. If 50 of those are destroyed in a fire, well, what is the value of the remaining 50? If demand is the same, it's a $100 million market cap on now 50 cards, well, the price is double for each one of them. But this this metaphor, I, I, let me push back a little and say that if I'm hearing it correctly, isn't a, a, a lined up metaphor in the sense that we're still talking about more Bitcoin being made available to the market. It's just half as much Bitcoin will be made available to the market starting in 2024. So I don't know that the equivalent analogy would be the destruction of Babe Ruth baseball cards so long as the demand remained the same. But doesn't this doesn't this require the demand, in other words, the adoption of Bitcoin, the the, the interested acquirers of Bitcoin to continue to increase? Because if it actually flatlined, like not one single extra person in the world decided they wanted to buy Bitcoin in 2024 versus 2023, you'd actually still have more supply relative to the demand than you did in 2023. Somewhat, but you have to remember, and this is another thing where Bitcoin is unique, because Bitcoin, there's this concept in economics called perfect information. And it's this idea that if you could have total information about a commodity that it would basically be priced perfectly, right? Because all the information would be contained in the price. But you can never know what the gold supply is going to be 50 years from now, 100 years from now, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no such thing as perfect information in any economic system because there's all this uncertainty about, well, what's its supply going to be in the future? What's the demand going to be, et cetera. Now, there's a valid argument on the demand side, which I would go back to the properties of money and say, well, what, what do people want for money? five properties. So uh, that you can't say with certainty, but what you can say is that we know Bitcoin supply forever. Uh, we know that the last Bitcoin will be mined in the year 2140. We know that it will cap at 21 million. 
So when you look at it through the lens of perfect information, it's kind of like looking at uh, a cap table. You know, when you look at a cap table, someone owns a business. There's a, a register of who owns what shares, what class, uh, options, warrants, et cetera, et cetera. As an investor, you should never really care about the outstanding uh, shares on that cap table. You need to always look at, I mean, you can, that it can have some relevant information, but the real information is the fully diluted number. I want to know how many total shares of all the warrants are executed, all the options are exercised. What is the fully diluted share count outstanding? That's the number that matters. So we know Bitcoin's fully diluted number is 21 million. We have no idea what gold's fully diluted number is. We have no idea what any commodity's fully diluted number is. So you're right. The analogy isn't perfect. And again, metaphors are never perfect. <laughs> but you're effectively cutting that new issuance in half every year. Another way to think about this, miners that are winning these, they're called Coinbase rewards. So when you close a block successfully, you're rewarded the newly issued Bitcoin. Miners today have to sell most of that Bitcoin to pay their expenses, right? They need to pay the notes on their equipment. They need to pay for the electricity. They need to pay for their overhead, et cetera. Every time you cut that supply assurance in half, you're cutting the selling pressure on Bitcoin in half. Miners are now selling half as much Bitcoin as they were in the previous halving epoch and the new halving epoch. Mm. And then you look at Bitcoin's price action over time, this is why it tends to have these crazy run-ups roughly 18 months after every halving. I think the number last time I looked at it was 510 days post-halving. Bitcoin has this crazy price peak and then it will fall down again and it will trade sideways for a long time until the next halving. And once there's another halving, there's another huge run-up. And so the, a question emerges here. There's this game theoretic. It's fascinating, honestly. How long can that pattern persist where people see, okay, halving, 510 days later, crazy run up in the price because minor selling pressure has been reduced. Presumably demand has at least remained constant, if not expanded. And I would argue strongly too, the demand expands as we counterfeit more currency. As the dollar and these other things are less adequate as a store of value, people are naturally going to choose the thing that is more adequate. How many times does this cycle need to repeat where people start to front run it? And they say, well, if this thing just keeps doing what it does, what it's programmed to do every four years, and then the number goes up in order, the price goes up in order of magnitude, 510 days post having, I should just acquire as much as I can right now in anticipation of future adoption. Well, as our, as our friend Rich Katz has said to me a bunch of times now, more than I can count, uh, and he says it with such clarity and conviction, which is my biggest fear about Bitcoin is not about the price. It's about the price getting to a point to where I can't buy it. You know, right. like, you know, that that's that's actually what a, the greater worry could ultimately be is that the I mean, we all know of Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point and you know, I don't think we're at that point certainly yet where there's been the significant amount of adoption that is likely to take place, but when it does happen, it's going to happen quickly and the price is going to go up a lot. And it's going to become well. Then you're not going to be able to buy a Bitcoin. You're going to be able. You're going to be buying like certainly Sats, sats like small fractions of a Bitcoin. Um, in closing, and and thank you so much for this amazing discussion. And 
your valuable time. I know how busy you are. And I'm really grateful that you took time to spend time with me on a Saturday. Um, where, so you just kind of hit upon it a little bit. We've got a having happening next May. I know you're not a forecaster. We've had this conversation several times, like you sidestep any, any type of prog prognosticating, but there's a possibility that, that post having next May, uh, and for, for a long stretch of time, a year and a half, it sounds like that historically we see a nice run up in Bitcoin. So right now it might not be a bad time to at least dip your toes into the water, but where do you see, um, What's possible for Bitcoin? I mean, do you, do you think it gets to a million? Do you think it gets to five hundred thousand? I mean, what's the like? You have to be have some sense of where you think this ultimately ends up because you're so steeped in it in your life. Yeah, I definitely. Or those who live by the crystal ball are bound to eat glass. You know, <laughs> and I put out price predictions, but I always caveat it with like, look, this is just me looking at. The way currencies have debased historically and what commodity prices have done during that time and i'm picking a number um but it will be gradually then suddenly you know that's what someone asked hemingway like how does one go bankrupt <laughs> he said gradually then suddenly this is the nature of hyperinflations in general right they inflate slowly for a long time and then we get into economic crises and as we said earlier, fiat currency induces you to take on more debt. So there's, with every round of money printing, subsequent to that, there are exponentially more liabilities in the system. Mm -hmm. So when the next crisis comes, there's even more devastation. And with more devastation comes more inducement for the central bank to expand the currency supply even further. Mm -hmm. For instance, in 2008, we printed $700 billion. That was a staggering number. At that time, staggering. Like, you know, many people were predicting hyperinflation in the US dollar closely after that. It was a shocking number. In 2020, we printed $6 trillion. That's an order of magnitude more in just 12 years later. So when you see currencies fail, this is how they, they do it. So you have long, slow debasement, a crisis, a large round of money printing, more liabilities exponentially more liabilities are now introduced into the system because fiat currency incentivizes debt accumulation, as we've described. When the next crisis comes, those liabilities are wiped out and you need an order of magnitude more money printing. Uh, there's a great book called, very short book, very easy read, perfectly describes the consequences of, of failing currencies titled Fiat Currency Inflation in France. And he calls this the law of accelerating issuance and depreciation. The more rapidly you issue new units of currency, the more rapidly they depreciate. And the more, order of magnitude more, you need to issue next time. This is like uh, the law of diminishing returns, right? You, uh, something like fiat currency is often analogized to drugs or alcohol. Because you know the first drink makes you feel good, the second drink makes you feel a little bit less good, the third drink makes you feel a little bit less good, and then ten drinks later, you're getting these diminishing returns, and you get a much worse hangover as a result. Um, I think to the extent that human beings cannot resist the temptation 
to engage in currency counterfeiting or printing of money is the same extent to which Bitcoin monetizes and outcompetes all inferior forms of money as the entire entirety of human history has shown. Hard money or strong money outcompetes weak money. So I think Bitcoin will just continue to outcompete weaker money and it will do so in an accelerated fashion as those monies become weaker. Not only is the dollar becoming weaker in terms of purchasing power, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but it's becoming weaker in terms of usability. It's not even private property anymore. When I go to send a wire, I'm sending even small wires, $5,000, $10,000, I'm getting questions from my bank. I'm getting delays. I'm, what is this for? Who is this party? Well, this is going to go back. We got to call this. Who are they? Can we get a, an invoice? Can we get this? Can we get that? It's like, this is my fucking money. Quote unquote, my money. It's not actually your money. The fiat currency you have in a bank, the numbers you see on your online banking, uh, it's not actually yours. You're in a creditor debtor relationship with a bank. You have loaned that money to the bank. They may or may not return it to you or let you use it. As that gets worse and worse and worse, and government oppression, intervention, capital controls get worse and worse and worse, you're creating demand for Bitcoin. People are going to want to own a form of property or money that can be transferred without any interference whatsoever. And they're going to want that more and more as the interference increases. So in terms of price, I have a public price prediction. First of all, I think the US dollar is hyperinflated by the year 2035. And again, this is like a roughshod estimate that is personal to me. I'm not I'm not going to sit here in the year 2035 and the dollar's not hyperinflated and apologize. I'm not here to give you something to hang your hat on. This is just an estimate that I've made and I'm talking about it out loud. So caveat emptor, what whatever, you know, not financial advice, all 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 caveats. Send me a send me an email of what you want us to put in the show notes in terms of the the, the you know the disclaimer and we'll we'll put it in there for you. <laughs> it's all good. I'm not yeah I'm not in the business of giving financial advice, so you know take this all with a grain of salt. I think that Bitcoin is a multi million dollar asset in the 2030s, but again, just like you described for, for one coin. For one coin, that's right. Just like you described with your Mexican food fajitas, right? Money loses meaning as it's depreciating. So I also think in the 2030s, a million dollars sure ain't going to be what it used to be. Yeah, because it's an important distinction to say if you say that one Bitcoin is worth a million dollars, you're pegging that to the dollar, which has been right. dramatically right. deflated. So this world where Bitcoin, and I, I would point you to my episode with Robert Kiyosaki where I went into the details on this. I think I had Bitcoin at a $12.5 million per Bitcoin price. But that purchasing power of that $12.5 million will be like a million dollars today. So this is a world where a gallon of milk is like 80 bucks, something, you know, like it's a totally different world. Mm-hmm. So to even say it's $12.5 million, people are like shocked. But you have to remember, you're anchoring to the dollar, using yes. your dollar as the frame of reference. You don't actually care about how many dollars you have. You care about how much purchasing power you have. What is a million bucks in a world where your average house costs $100 million, right? It's like not that much money. So I do think that um, 
the depreciation of fiat currency and the monetization of Bitcoin are going to go move in tandem, basically. And it will be gradually, then suddenly. When you see fiat currencies start to fail around the world and start to hyperinflate, you're going to see the Bitcoin price surging alongside. And um, just to speak, I told you I'd speak a little bit to the why of Bitcoin. You know, since King John signed the Magna Carta in 1215, we've known what we need government to provide. And that, that's life, needs to protect life, needs to protect liberty, and it needs to provide inviolable private property. That is the entire philosophical scope of government. And I think we did ourselves a huge disservice with the founding of the United States when we swapped inviolable property for the pursuit of happiness. And it is my strong belief that humans with recourse to ownership, to, to be able to own something that is very difficult, if not impossible, for other people to steal from you, is one of the primary mechanisms for peace and for human flourishing. We're all just trying to get by, all right? We're all just trying to work, create some value, and capture some of that value for ourselves in the process. To the extent that we can prevent others from forcefully extracting that value from us is the same extent to which we can incentivize human flourishing and cooperation. And Bitcoin, by being the most expensive asset to steal in human history, is this giant tectonic shift of the incentive landscape away from coercion and violence and towards peace. So there's a whole nother two hours we could talk about that. But um, just as an intro to the why Bitcoin, I think it is the greatest peacemaking technology that human beings have ever found. And I think in retrospect, as significant as the internet has been, I think we'll look back on the internet as the thing that gave us Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is the killer app of the internet. Bitcoin's a bigger deal than the internet. And it's going to totally transform and upend all institutional realities we take for granted today. And so it's early. Bitcoin's 14 years old. This is a multi-century game. People often say things like, oh, well, well, I see it in my lifetime. I'm like, you need to think beyond your lifetime. This is like, this is for the soul of humanity, right? We've seen what gold has done, what it's led us to. It's led us to central banking, systematic theft, uh, organized crime at a scale previously unimaginable. The founding fathers of the United States repeatedly fought against the implementation of a central bank. It took three attempts before we got the Federal Reserve established here. Uh, Andrew Jackson punched a central banker on the face. He told him he was going to drive them out like a den of vipers. This has been a fight. That a, large, a large reason why we had the American Revolution was to escape the oppression of the Bank of England. So this is a fight humans have been fighting for a long, long time. And I think the culmination is in Satoshi's invention of Bitcoin, that we finally found a form of private property that can actually be inviolable and can hold government in check and can incentivize us to be cooperative rather than coercive. So the good news for everyone who engaged in this couple of hours with Robert and I is that you have a podcast 
that has over 350 episodes called the What Is Money podcast. And it's really fascinating because I remember when when Rich um, mentioned to me that he was full-time basically in Bitcoin, meaning 40, 50 hours a week, just listening to podcasts and just fully down entrenched in the rabbit hole. I just couldn't even comprehend what that meant. Like, <laughs> how could you be spending 40 hours a week for the last six months on Bitcoin? Well, for those that are now at least uh, in receipt of a cursory overview of mm-hmm. the subject matter of money, the subject matter of Bitcoin, you now understand, at least in a, in a small fractional way, that what we're really talking about here is sociology. We're talking about history. We're talking about politics. We're talking about morality. We're talking about everything right. because money, ultimately, at the end of the day, has a direct impact on all of those items and many, many more. So to to direct them, because I know that there are going to be people who are going to say, oh, shit, like, I want to know why not Ethereum or I want to know why I shouldn't be owning Dogecoin and, and all of this stuff. I know that that you, I mean, you've had people like Michael Saylor and Jordan Peterson and Robert Kiyosaki and all of these amazing guests on your show. Where can they find you? How do they learn more about Robert Breedlove? Yeah. So what is moneypodcast.com? We've got links to all of our podcast distribution modes there, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast. My largest social platform is Twitter. And my my Twitter handle is at breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. And uh, yeah, I it's it is a rabbit hole that many people don't know exists. And I feel very grateful to have fallen into this thing somewhat early. And I'm very grateful that people are getting value from my work. Uh, it's weird. It's strange. As a guy that I never really wanted to be in the public spotlight, I've always been a finance guy, kind of back of the house. And now I've been recognized all over the world. Um, people are getting tremendous value about these conversations and what we're doing. And I feel very passionate about it and uh, grateful to be a part of what I consider to be the greatest humanitarian movement in human history, and that is uh, the emergence of Bitcoin. Robert, thanks so much, buddy, for your graciousness, your wisdom, for taking the time on your weekend, as I said, to to be with me. Um, I know that uh, a lot of people are going to be checking out your show um, and really, really appreciate your friendship. Happy to do it, Tim, and uh, happy to call you a friend as well, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and thank you to everyone for turning in, uh, tuning into this episode of the 360 Experience.